Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 to chapter 3, 18. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have you wearied him, you asked, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you see, you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, who you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for your judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But, you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But, you ask, how do we rob you? In tithings and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from disparing your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have, ha- you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we are the arrogant, ble- the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evil doers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This is the word of the Lord. So I woke up this morning with not much voice, and uh, we'll see how it holds out. It may be a relay, and I hand the baton to Tim. It's a full script he's got to work with here, so. But uh, let let me leave this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable uh, me to speak uh, well, faithfully. We pray that you would enable the rest of us to hear and listen faithfully. And don't let us leave unchanged. 
Uh, we'll do keep uh, Malachi 3 open, page 961. Be careful what you wish for. It's the title of Geoffrey Archer's new novel and the title of a new film coming to the cinemas soon. And it could well be the title of Malachi chapter 3, Be Careful What You Wish For. Because in it, we find that the Israelites make a wish. They ask a question which actually begins to unsettle them and destabilize them. Be careful what you wish for. The prophet Malachi was ministering 60 or 70 years after the completion of the building of the temple. And the Israelites were disillusioned. They had many, many wonderful promises they'd been looking forward to. Uh, promises that the nations would come to the temple to worship. Promises of renown and wealth. And yet as they looked around, they saw that they were small in number. And they saw that they were under Persian domination and that the promises didn't seem to have come true, and they were filled with disillusionment. And what they wanted was the God of justice to step in and intervene and vindicate them. That is why they asked that question in chapter 2, verse 17. Where is the God of justice? And the answer to that question triggers a conversation between the Lord Almighty and the Israelites which goes on to demonstrate who is ready for the Lord of justice and his coming and who is not ready. It's quite an unsettling passage. Now we're going to walk through it using three sets of characters as way markers. You'll be relieved to hear they all begin with R. And uh, the first is the refiner, the second is the robbers, and the third is the resolute. The refiner, the robbers, and the resolute. Firstly, the refiner. The God of justice is coming. Did you notice the answer to their question in verses 1 to 5? Where is the God of justice? Answer, verse 1. Suddenly, the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Verse 5. So I will come. Question, where is the God of justice? Answer, coming. He's coming. But be careful what you wish for. Have a look down at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Endure suggests something difficult. Stand is in the military sense of stand your ground or retain your territory. And the, the rhetorical questions invite the double answer, nobody. Nobody can stand in the Lord Almighty's presence when he comes. Nobody at all. The Lord Almighty, as Tim mentioned, is Malachi's favorite name for the Lord or God in this little book. And it literally means the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies. Now, the last couple of weeks, I've been visiting some military camps and I found that I've given utmost respect even to a single soldier who's carrying a machine gun. You just do. But how much more respect would I give to a whole army? Or how much more respect would I give to a lord of an army? And that is the picture of the Lord we have here. If we know our Bibles and Revelation at all, you'll know that picture of Jesus Christ 
riding a white charger at the head of heaven's armies. He is not someone to be trifled with. It's not a picture of the vulnerable Jesus often we have painted for us. You know, the kind of Jesus who's more like a door-to-door salesman than anything else. And there he is on our doorstep, and we feel so sorry for him. He looks so vulnerable, and he's in need of our belief and our devotion and our financial giving. And we give. We didn't need to, but we felt sorry for him. But this is a very different picture. He's the Lord Almighty El Shaddai. He needs nothing from us. He is the Holy One. He's of purer eyes than to look on evil. And when he comes, Malachi says, nobody will be able to stand. I remember saying at Root, I don't know whether George remembers, a couple of years ago or last year, I asked them what their response would be if the Lord Jesus Christ was to walk into that room there and then. You can imagine we got a variety of answers. But if the Lord Jesus Christ was to walk into the nave right now, this room, none of us would go and shake his hand. We wouldn't hug him. We wouldn't take photographs of him. We would fall involuntarily to our knees because he's the Lord Almighty. Who can stand when he comes? But the gospel surprise comes in the second part of verse 2. Have a look down. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. I wonder what word there surprised you the most. For me, it was the word refiner's. By rights, the Lord of the universe should be a consuming fire amongst us. His holiness should devour us as sinners, as a flame devours petrol. He should be a consuming fire. But here wonderfully in Malachi 3, we're told he will be a refining fire. In other words, a fire which purifies us. And that is the miracle of the New Testament. That when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, he came to refine the people he stayed with. He came to forgive their sins, to sanctify their impurities. To take the other picture here, he came as a launderer. It's an image we don't often have of the Lord Jesus working in a laundrette. But did you see that? He comes with his launderer's soap. And again, it's a picture of inward cleansing that he brings, forgiving the guilt of sin and instilling new pure habits in us. That's why the first heading is the refiner rather than the destroyer. And notice that as long as we live now, that is always what the Lord is like. Did you notice that in verse 6? I, the Lord... Do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. He is committed to being like this. And therefore, he always will be like this. We go up and down Monday morning, Friday evening. He does not. He is always the refiner for those who will receive him as that. It's wonderful news. But that washing 
and that refining, that forgiveness he brings, always, always come hand in hand with repentance. You may have noticed that in the New Testament. You never get the forgiveness of sins only being preached. It's always the forgiveness of sins and repentance being preached. And that's where verse 5 comes in. It's quite a chilling verse in some ways. It's tragic, but it's one that's loving in its clarity. I will come near you for judgment. This is addressed to those who haven't been refined, haven't received the Lord Jesus' forgiveness. Notice that the list here encompasses sin in the area of spirituality, in the area of sexuality, in the area of how we use our words, how we behave with employment ethics and social ethics. It's a very broad list. And the last one there in that list is particularly pertinent given the current refugee crisis. I think you'd agree. But also notice why these things will be judged. It is because they spring from hearts which do not fear the Lord Almighty. And that's why sin is so serious. When you and I sin, we're not just contravening some abstract law hanging there in the ether. But we're walking up to the Lord Almighty, the God of the universe, and we're slapping him in the face. It's a personal affront when we sin. It doesn't spring from a heart which fears him. That is why he must judge it. And finally, notice that these warnings in verse 5 are given to people who are outwardly and nominally members of God's people. Malachi's letter is addressed to Israel, to people who are spiritual insiders. It's the equivalent of this warning being given to us today, to people who've been baptized and confirmed, to people who are here at St. Michael's not just once a month, maybe every week, to people who are maybe in leadership positions in this church, to people who maybe preach from time to time. It's a stern warning to spiritual insiders. And therefore, we need to take it seriously. It's a salutary reminder that God doesn't look at our exteriors. He looks on the heart. And he cannot be fooled. And he will not be mocked. It's a reminder that there will be people on that last day in heaven whom we never expected to be there. Because God looks on the heart. But conversely, There'll be people, and I dare say it, in hell, whom we knew and did Bible studies with. People who were spiritual insiders. Verse 5 is a stern warning to us. And how fitting it is that the glorious offer of verse 7 follows verse 5. Don't you love these words? The free offer. Return to me and I will return to you. It's a free offer. Repent from your sin. Receive my forgiveness. And I, the Lord Almighty, will turn back to you. We'll go back to the days of friendship back in the Garden of Eden when we walk together hand in hand. Isn't that a wonderful offer? And it's free for anyone here this evening. Some people here have been on Alpha and have discovered what that means. 
Maybe that's for you. We're starting that course soon. But Israel had a problem. Do you notice their repartee, their, their question coming back? How are we to return? How are we to return? And it wasn't an orienteering question. It wasn't a question like, I just don't know the way back. I don't have a map. It was a self-justifying question springing from pride. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, They were saying, I don't need to return to you if I'm already with you, Lord. If repentance is for sinners, I don't need to repent. I'm already with you, Lord. Why would I need to come back to you? They were trying to justify the way they were living, saying there's not a problem here. But they did have a problem, and it was a big one. The problem was that they were spiritually blind to their own sin. And spiritual blindness is twice as serious as physiological blindness. Do you know that? Because the people who are spiritually blind, not only can they not see, but they cannot see that they cannot see. People who are spiritually blind don't realize that they are. And that is why we could be spiritually blind this evening. And the Lord is so loving, he doesn't leave these blind people in their blindness. He shows them their sin. So are you ready for this? It's quite punchy. And I must warn you, it's to do with money. Okay, so the second heading, here we are, the robbers. The gift which takes more than it gives. End of verse 7. But you ask, how are we to return? Well, here's the answer, straight up from God. Will a man rob God? Now, I don't want to take it for granted that we all believe that God exists here. But if you don't believe that, can I ask you to suspend your disbelief? Let's pretend God exists if you're not with me on that. Wouldn't he be the last person you would steal from? Can we agree on that? You just wouldn't get away with it. He doesn't need CCTV. Will man rob God? And we're all wanting to shake our heads. But the next words are chilling. Will man rob God? Well, you rob me. You rob me. The word for rob in the original is to take forcibly. It's almost highway robbery. Your money or your life. It's violent. And the God of the universe is saying to Israel, you've been robbing me like that. And they come back, self-justifying again. But how? How have we robbed you? And here's the surprise. In tithes and offerings. In tithes and offerings. Try and wrap your head around that. It's provocatively put. They're robbing God in their very act of so-called generosity. How could that be possible? Their gifts to God take from God more than they give to God. Verse 10 sheds more light for us. Have a look down. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse 
that there may be food in my house. In the Old Testament, every uh, Israelite was commanded to give a tenth of all their income, all their farming produce, uh, to the temple so that the priests and the Levites could have enough to live on. That's what God means by his house. It's not that God needs food. It's that the priests and the Levites need the food. And it seems in Malachi's day, the people had backed out of that. They'd promised to give it, but then suddenly they got cold feet. You know, they were looking at the pot of their savings to try and put down the deposit for the house. And they thought, golly, if I give a tithe, that's really going to drain it. I have to get something smaller. Or the pot of savings to buy that new car. And they thought, well, and for whatever reason, their tithes had dropped back and they hadn't been given the full tithe. And God says not giving the full tithe is the equivalent of robbing him. And when you think about it, that makes sense. If I promise to you to give you something and then I back out of giving it to you, I'm robbing you of what rightfully belongs to you. Now take it in this situation with God. He owns everybody and everything already. And by his generosity, he's given him to us to enjoy. It's on loan. And out of his generosity, he's only asked us to give 10% back in the Old Testament. 10%. That's nothing. And yet the people in Malachi, they were failing to do even that. And he's saying, you are robbing me. This is daylight robbery. You want to know what you need to repent of? It's this. It's this. And robbing God is the very definition of foolishness. Because it turns out when we rob God, we rob ourselves. Look at verse 10. Bring the whole tithe. It's the only time in the Bible God says, test me in this. And see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. God says, if we give what we ought to give to him, then he will repay us much more. Now, we need to be careful here. It's not that this is a surefire financial way to hit the rich list cheaply. But it is true, and we mustn't miss this, it is true that the God of the universe, generally speaking, rewards those who are generous to him. That is true. So if we're giving of our time or our money or our giftings, our talents or our energy, then I think we will find, and many of us here will testify to this, that we will not end up out of pocket, generally speaking. It's a well-known saying, God is no man or woman's debtor. And I can say that I think that's true. I think that's true. Uh, notice a few principles for giving found in our passage here before we move on. And as we look at these specifics, we do well to remember Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Do you remember that verse? I have loved you, says the Lord. In other words, what we're going to look at here is not giving out of cold duty. It is giving in response to his extravagant love to us. So first principle, giving to the Lord 
means giving primarily in the Old Testament to his temple, giving in the New Testament to his church. Now, there are a thousand and one great causes to give to in our world, are there not? I was watching the Rugby World Cup, as many of us probably were yesterday, and even there, it's wonderful. They've they've got a charity they are supporting. And you can't turn anywhere in London without seeing someone in need. But as Christian people, we are called to be experts at giving to the church, first and foremost. Let me be even more specific. As Christian members of St. Michael's Chester Square, we are called to be experts at giving to St. Michael's Chester Square. And that makes sense when we think about it. Non-Christian people will not give to Christian charities. We should do that. Non-Christian people will not give to the church, the national church. We should do that. Other Christian people will not give to St. Michael's Chester Square. We should do that. We are not government funded. Contrary to popular opinion, we don't have a huge worldwide fan base. You guys provide the money for this. It's how it works. And so that's the first principle, prioritize giving to the local church. I think if we were to look at our standing orders, it should be, if we're members here, St. Michael's Chester Square is the main beneficiary of our financial giving. I think that's the case. Second principle, give systematically. I think probably as a congregation we're quite good at that. But the Israelites back in the day gave their first fruits and their tithe at the beginning, as it were, of the month. They didn't come to the end of the month and see what was left over and give what was left over. They gave the beginning of the month's work. And that means that um, I think many of us could do a good job of using standing orders and that coming to government and banking and technology, and they make it so easy for us to claim gift, gift aid and all that. But it means that some, some weeks we may want to give to the collection at church. Good thing to do. But I think if we're a member here, it, we'd be given to the collection over and above what our standing order will be. That should be our main backbone of our giving. Third, giving is proportional to our income. Old Testament, they gave the tithe, the tenth. Uh, that is a no longer a principle in the New Testament, maybe a sensible figure. The New Testament principle is giving self-sacrificially. It's a slightly more knotty one. In other words, it's giving in such a way that it begins to cramp our style, that it begins to affect the car we drive or the holidays we go on or the schools we may send our children to when we get to that stage. That's the principle in the New Testament. Uh, that is still proportional. Now, some of us could give a lot more than others before it begins to affect our lifestyle. It's proportional. But it does mean we need to be radical about this. Now, I must say that as I say all these things, I'm saying them to myself as much as I'm saying them to you. Please don't feel I'm saying this hypocritically. These are things I need to hear, Charles and Tim need to hear, as much as you do. But uh, it's refreshing, isn't it? Maybe it's been stirring for us. We hadn't realized we'd been robbing God. But if we're giving less than we ought to the God of the universe, it's not like we've slipped spiritually from a first class to a 2-1. We're actually slapping God in the face and robbing him. It's daylight robbery. It's quite serious. Third point. 
third heading, the resolute, and I love this, God's treasured possession are remembered. This is verses 15 to 18. Now, of course, living in the way that Malachi 3 describes is hard. Would you agree with me? That is a hard way to live in the area of our finances. That's a hard way to live. It is made doubly hard when we live in a culture which doesn't live that way. It is made triply hard when we live in a church where there are others here who at least we perceive not to be living that way. People who would call themselves Christians and yet aren't living seemingly as radically as we're called to live. I don't know about you, but I find it easier to keep my spiritual cutting edge living radically for Jesus, at living alongside dyed-in-the-wool atheists, living against God's ways, than I do living next to half-hearted Christians. There is nothing more corrosive to my spiritual keenness than living next to half-hearted Christians. And it's because I look over my shoulder at them and I think, you're playing me onside here. I'm fine. And I begin to get less radical in areas that are unseen to others, like my finances. Do you find that? Well, in Malachi 3, it was exactly the same situation going on. Many of the people calling themselves God's people had begun to question whether it was really worth serving God wholeheartedly. Have a look. In verse 14, they were saying, it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? They were looking around themselves and noticing, verse 15, that the evildoers prosper. And even those who challenge God escape. It was like they were walking around Chester Square and they thought, golly, you know, the size of people's bank accounts doesn't accord with their godliness. Have you ever thought that? It's true. And then they moved on one step further thinking, well, okay, well, let's abandon the godliness and live for myself. I want to live for personal gain. That was the context of Malachi 3. Half-hearted believers How do we stay keen in that kind of corrosive spiritual culture? Well, the answer is here, and it's in verse 16. I love this. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. That's the answer. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. It's a picture of church. When we get together and we have honest conversations, and I say to to you guys, I'm finding it really hard to give financially, radically, as I'm called to. Are you? Yeah, I'm finding it hard as well. I thought it was only me. And we can spur each other on as the keen beans. We need one another to do that. It's a picture of the church. And then the Lord listened to what they said, and he heard what they said. They seem to have resolved to fear the Lord and to do the right thing, to adjust their personal financial giving. And the Lord was eavesdropping in. He was listening into that conversation over coffee. He heard it. Amazing. These people are the resolute, the people who are sure they're going to do the right thing. And if that's us, and I hope that is many of us this evening, then can I point you to a very precious verse, verse 16. 
A scroll of remembrance was written in God's presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. So can I ask you, what is the area in your Christian life where the cost is the greatest at the moment? It may be financial giving, may not be. What is the area in your Christian life where the cost is the greatest at the moment, that battle? And you're asking yourself, is it worth it? Can I say from verse 16 that God knows your name? He's got the angels in heaven writing a book and it's full of names of people like you who are going all out for the Lord Jesus Christ, who are giving radically, financially, self-sacrificially. No one else can see that. There's no brass plaque with your name on it on the wall of church. And that's okay, because God knows your name. He sees it, and he loves that. I'm going to finish by reading the final verse. I think we'll find it a great encouragement. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Let's pray.